I like to ask myself, how do I allow the grief to change me? How do I allow this experience to change me? This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I believe that stories save us, and that's why I've spent my life immersed in books. First as a writing professor, and now as an award-winning author who leads women's writing and wellness workshops and retreats. I find that no matter how zen we strive to be, life rarely goes as planned. But stories are our steadfast companions. And since the last few years have brought huge transitions to everyone, including me, I wanted to talk to other women who have lived real lives and have been audacious enough to share all the messy, joyous, complicated bits. I thought I could learn a thing or two from them about writing and healing and about, well, being human. And it's been one of the greatest thrills of my life. So join me for powerful conversations with today's top women writers and wellness experts who go beyond the surface level and into that deep, raw, honest place, the heart of the story. Hi, friends. You know when you have one of those moments where the perfect person crosses your path at the perfect time and you had no idea that they were some kind of secret miracle worker? (laughs) Well, that's what today's conversation with Mei Yoshikawa was like. To give you a little bit of context, here's how I grew to learn about Mei. I was interviewing Susan Piver on my podcast a few months ago, the beloved meditation and Buddhist instructor. And then Mei listened to that episode and then reached out to me. I learned that she was a yoga wonder woman. She has been the face of Adidas Yoga since 2015. She won the Yoga People's Award in 2016. She was on the cover of Yogini Magazine for like 10 years. (laughs) She has been a beloved yoga instructor for two decades, you know, on and on. She is into meditation and journaling, and they're an important part of her process as well, personally, and then within her teaching. So when I learned that about her, I thought, oh, yeah, she is a perfect person to be on this show. But then I had today's conversation with her and realized that personally, she was the exact person that I needed to speak with because she talks about what she calls life tsunamis, which are the really, really hard moments in life that just upend us, spin us around. We don't know if we'll survive them. And she talks about how she works through those hard moments and what provides a sort of safety net of healing when you are going through those hard moments and then how to look at things differently after one of those hard moments. She was exactly who I needed to speak with because I myself was kind of in one of uh, my life's hard moments emotionally. And I wonder if you ever feel this way, but at my core, I am an optimistic 
see all possibility kind of person. But when I am hurting, I feel very, very small and afraid. And I was having one of those small afraid times. And the reason why is because sometimes I get in a bit of a pretzel about just hard things that I've been through. And it makes me scared that more hard things are going to come my way. So for example, you know, if my father can pass away at age 57, then what other bad things can happen to me, my loved ones, and the rest of the beautiful humans in this world? You know, one of those kind of spirals, (laughs) really fun catastrophizing mixed with trying to control everything as to protect myself and my loved ones from experiencing any harm. So I was just in one of those hard times. And I know when I'm in those hard times, which is is helpful. I now have an observational self-awareness because I've been practicing meditation and journaling and yoga for so long. I go, ah, okay. So I can come out of it and observe myself and go, oh, you're really looping and circling about this. It's really, really taking over your thoughts. You're really afraid right now. That helps a little. And then I I turn to my practices of journaling and meditation and seeking out nature and dancing. I, I took an ecstatic dance class that was really, really helpful. And so by the time I talked to May, I was kind of processing these emotions. But then she just came in and delivered such wisdom that you'll hear. I was weeping at the end of the episode, weeping. And she just served the exact kind of words that I needed to hear so that I could look at my past traumas and hardships differently and feel expansive again. So if you are in what she calls a life tsunami and you are hurting and you're looking to not only heal, but also build a safety net for the future of of practices and support to help you. This is the episode to listen to and to listen to again and again and again. So here is my conversation with May Yoshikawa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to connect with you and your audience. Mm. What they don't know, what you don't know, listeners, is right before we pressed record, we started chatting about synchronicity and kindred spirits. And May was saying so many beautiful things that I kept going, hold on, I want to press record. I want to press record. So I know this is going to be a gem of a conversation. So maybe you can start us off by explaining where in the world you are. Yes, I am connecting with you this morning from Tokyo, Japan, where I live and work. I have lived and worked here for most of my life. Let's see, where do I rewind back to? Well, I discovered yoga back in 2001 in a very deep, dark, depressed, and unhealthy phase of my life. And it's been 20 some years since then. But I spent a huge chunk of my 20s and 30s living and studying yoga and meditation in South India. So I like to say that I look Japanese, I sound American, 
but I found my heart in South India. Oh my goodness. So maybe we can rewind a bit and learn about your wellness and yoga journey. So take us back and how did you really kind of discover yoga as a practice and how did it help you? Yeah, there's been a few experiences of what I sometimes refer to as tsunamis in my life you know, the life experiences that turn you upside down, that wipe you out, you don't know which way is up and you don't even know if you're gonna survive. And the first for me happened when I was 14, 15, when my parents, after 26 years of a happy marriage and four kids, ended up in a really kind of nasty divorce. And as I was amidst my pubescent years at the time, it was just such a rocky phase for me emotionally and In so many ways, I didn't know who to trust or who to count on. After about six months, I couldn't live with either of my mom or dad. So I went to live with my sister. And in the absence of a person or a guardian that I could count on as my steady pillar at that time, I discovered journaling. I started to write my feelings out. So I started to write, 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 write as an outlet and as a way of reflecting on my truth, on my inner truth, when I was 15, I had no idea it was going to take me anywhere or how it would go hand in hand with my yoga practice and meditation practice later in my life. But well, my mom developed a very rare neurological disorder. And actually the onset of that happened when I was 17 and she was only 47 at the time. So my mom is half American, half Japanese, and she was a lefty who developed a neurological disorder in the right hemisphere of her brain. Mm. So it was complex enough that it took nine different university hospitals and all of these different doctors to come up with a diagnosis. At the end of which they said, we don't know for sure, but we can say that it's young onset, atypical Alzheimer type dementia. Mm. So my mom was still in her 40s, beginning to lose, yeah, beginning to lose memory, abilities to communicate, abilities to like reach for a glass of water. And she would completely miss the cup, you know, because she didn't have this three-dimensional recognition. And obviously it threw us off in a huge way, but it made me ask big questions of life. Mm -hmm. Why mom? why this disease? Why now? Why us? And how do I get through this? And I had so much anger and so much hate. And I would now call it grief. I don't think I had that awareness at the time. I was too young and too unknowing. But it was so difficult that these big questions tortured me in my mind and in my heart. And it ate up at me. I was a depressed insomniac. And at a certain point, I needed to start taking care of myself, or it wouldn't be just my mom's health that was deteriorating. I was also losing hold of my life. And I was only in university. You know, I was just a kid. Yeah. But from there, I discovered yoga. I discovered that there was a way to breathe and move your body in a systematic way 
that would help me to sleep on that day, that would help me to observe my mind rather than to be entwined in it. And I slowly, slowly, I mean, this is happening over years, I began to access a sense of awareness and an understanding of myself and my consciousness, and then, of course, my life. Oh, my goodness. So many helpful things to think about. This idea of life tsunamis. I've never heard the phrase before, but it is exactly what it feels like when trauma is at your doorstep and you feel so caught and turned and not knowing how you'll come out, if you'll come out. And these life tsunamis do have a way as much as they completely tear us up and throw us around. They have a way of clarifying things for us, making us ask big questions and sometimes inciting great change, like looking for healing uh, practices that will help us. Yes. It's incredible. Right. I couldn't tell you then, but I've come to understand now that what I refer to as these life tsunamis, like you said, they come to help rearrange and reorganize our lives. Mm. It's beyond us, beyond this conscious, oh, I think my life is going to be this way, you know, (laughs) because these things come, it feels at the time like they're coming at you in all of the ways that you didn't think they would. Yeah. But as you learn through them, as you live through them, as you gain that experience and that wisdom, I guess the short way of putting that is as you roll with the punches, Mm-hmm. You change, you allow yourself to change. And every time I've changed, I feel like I've gotten bigger, mm. like bigger in my awareness, more expansive in my awareness. And the discovery has been that I had been that big all along. I just thought I was smaller. I just thought my life was smaller. I just thought my possibilities were smaller, you know? Mm. Oh, it's so inspiring to think about because when we're in the midst of the heartache, it makes us feel tiny at first. So small, so small, small in fear, small in everything. But what is waiting on the other side is that bigness, is that expansion. And it's so... It's so inspiring for those who are listening who might be at the front end of one of these tsunamis, at the beginning of it, thinking things will never change, that nothing will ever get better, that there is no hope, that there is no bigness. So to know that there is expansion or realization that we were already this big is huge. Yeah. Yeah. I call them kizuki is the Japanese word for realization or gaining an awareness that was previously unaware to you. Mm -hmm. So once you realize something, once you see something that you hadn't seen before, you can't unrealize it. You can't Mm -hmm. unsee something you Mm -hmm. see now. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what I mean by bigness and expansion is that it's an evolution of awareness in a way that there's no going back. Mm. No. 
So many things come to my mind because in 2016, I was at a very kind of crippling point in that I was a relatively new mom of a three-year-old son. Uh, We had just moved from Massachusetts to Chicago. I was working as a professor and then doing other things because the professor job wasn't enough to make ends meet. And I was so overwhelmed and also so anxious, so, so anxious. And it was one of those moments where I thought, if I don't do something to change I just feel like life is going to consume me. And I found this holistic practitioner who taught me about breath work, who taught me about journaling in a different way, who taught me about seeing the world anew, who taught me about different forms of meditation. And it created this idea of possibility and awareness. And she was this just gem waiting in the midst of this tsunami. And yeah, I can think of so many moments like that, but to put it into the words that you have, it it just makes so much sense. And it brings hope to people who might be in the midst of this. And so you, you discovered some of this bigness and you discovered yoga, maybe take us to this phase in India and what happened. Yeah. Well, discovering the bigness was definitely gradual and much more of a long-term thing. I started yoga in 2001 and yoga in Japan had suffered terrible reputational damage because although it was like probably already a healthy kind of hip stylish thing in the West, Tokyo had suffered its worst domestic terrorist attack in 1995, where a cult who called themselves the Om Shinmikyo cult, they used some poisonous gas on the metro system. And it was like huge. It was all over the news. But because they called themselves Om, there was this sacred mantra Om. And there was all of this footage on the media about them, like taking lotus postures and trying to levitate or whatever. And it was just really kind of dark and whacked out. So by the time I started looking for yoga in 2001, yoga wasn't cool. Mm. Okay, like yoga wasn't cool. Mm -hmm. Yoga wasn't hip. Yoga wasn't anywhere. In fact, I looked all over the entire Tokyo metropolitan area. There were only three studios. Wow. And I checked them out to see which one I could continue going to because I knew that I would need a continuous practice to really recreate my lifestyle from one of such unhealthiness and depression and insomnia to, you know, really become healthy again. But I found this teacher who was half Taiwanese and half Japanese. So he was also a mix and he catered to a more international community, which I felt very familiar in. And I started studying under him, which was really, really lucky for me because he had a pretty traditional background. He had been studying from the top teachers in the United States, as well as his time in India. And he would take these trips to India once a year for one month. And by then I had developed this daily practice. Like I was in the studio at 7 a.m., like six days a mm-hmm. So if my teacher was gone for a whole month, I was going to feel it. But it made me wonder, who is his teacher? Uh-huh. 
that he would leave that he would leave <laughs> us for a whole month and go to India. It got me curious. And so shortly thereafter, I went to seek out his teacher, who was the founding father of Ashtanga Yoga. Mm-hmm. And so I went to go and study under him. I actually met him first in 2003 while he was on world tour. And then I started going to India myself in 2004. Mm. And so that's where your heart kind of fell in love there. Why and what drew your soul there? I was wounded. I was tired. I was in bits when I went kind of reeling from the reality of my mom like losing her as my mom and as a person, it was like the slow grief process, which I didn't know how to digest. And so the yoga always gave me a method to come back to my breath. I can breathe. I can inhale now. I can exhale now. And it gave me a system where I can stretch my body in this way and then exhale that way. It was like an equalizer in my body from all of the tension and all of the relaxation, all of the tension and all the relaxation. But most importantly, you know, there were other cultural constraints too. Like I was so young. I was like 21, 22 with this mom who we were losing. And my life was just supposed to get started. Like my friends in university, they were just like, go grab their beers <laughs> and like, yeah, go date people and like whatever. And I was just not there. I was like, what's the meaning of life? Mm. You know, like what is a person when she can't communicate anymore? Where is her consciousness if she doesn't remember my name? Like uh-huh. I was in that room, mm-hmm. you know? But going to India for so many of us, does away with a whole lot of common sense. Mm. Okay, if you're like me and you're like born and raised in Tokyo, okay, if the train is supposed to leave at 8.30 a.m., it rolls in at 8.29, opens its clean doors, people get out, people get in, it closes, and it leaves at 8.30, okay? It's very punctual, very organized, non-chaotic. Things are orderly. Mm -hmm. You go to India, you go to India, you look at the clock on the platform on the train in the train station and on your watch and on your phone and like in the room, they all have different times. <laughs> none of them, none of them say the same. I mean, it's a mind boggling experience. It's so chaotic. And you just like, how does this place even run? Mm. You know, it just does away with a lot of common sense that have to do with time, that have to do with space, that have to do with power. And connection, I think. But when you do away with these underlying notions of culture that we all have silently agreed to, we silently agree to time, we silently agree to space, we silently agree to power, we silently agree to everything. It's just a part of culture. But you go to a place like India, and it just throws all that out the door. And they're kind of like, Like I'll say to my friend, hey, do you want to meet for chai tomorrow? And he might say something like, oh, let's see what the Lord Ram says. If it's in Ram's books, then we might meet, you know. (laughs) But if we are meant to meet, you will meet. And it does happen like every single time. So it kind of runs on a different, it just runs in a different zone. And so in a good way, I think there are two types of people. People 
who love that and they're like, wow, this is fascinating. This has opened me to a whole new consciousness and way of life. And then there are the people that are like, I can't take this. This is too chaotic. And they're in resistance and they can't go with the flow. You can't enjoy the experience. I was probably right on the verge, but I dove into this. I, I could let go of the things that were really stressing me out about my life in Tokyo and in Japan and all of the stress and tension about working in a very tightly knit social structure and things. So in a good way, it undid me. Mm. I lost my sense of time. I lost my sense of what I thought I knew mm. and who I thought I was to discover who I am in the moment. Mm. Minus all of those preconceived notions of who you think you're supposed to be. So I think that's what I mean when I say I touched base with my heart or my soul. And yeah, it's just a door. You could do that anywhere through a good book. You know, you can lose your sense of time, but it's just India kind of became my other home. Wow. I was just going to ask for anyone who can't travel to India, what are some ways that we can lose these constraints and societal norms and pressures and stress and find ourselves? Have you found other ways? You mentioned maybe being immersed in a good book. Are there other ways that you've found that to happen? I really recommend spontaneity. Mm. So what if you just said, okay, this weekend I'm not, touching my phone. Okay. Like, okay. Like what do you do if you're not on your phone? Okay. And you're not, you don't open your computer and you go, mm, I feel like seeing my friend. You go, you go to that person's house and you ring their doorbell and you're like, Hey, are you free? Like, didn't you used to do that when you were like in second grade or whatever, like that kind of a thing that we don't do anymore because we think there are other norms and certain behaviors we're supposed to follow, you know, but just the freedom of why not? Like, why not try that kind of spontaneity? You don't always have to do it with someone. Sometimes like I would just wake up on a Sunday morning and be like, where do I feel like going? Oh, I feel like going to a forest. Hey, you want to go to a forest? And, and I'll just drive two hours to get to a pristine forest. And hang out just for the hell of it, like no reception, nothing. But this spontaneity, timing, and going with the flow, mm -hmm. I feel sometimes are like the language of the universe. Like if you keep filling your mind and filling your heart with all of the supposed tos and shouldas and all of these invisible rules, you just don't leave open space. You don't leave room for magic. Mm. That also for me is where meditation comes in because every morning when I sit for meditation, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody in a no thing, in a nowhere <laughs> with no ideas. Mm. And I allow myself that freedom so that I can have a clean slate of existence. And then I'm kind of like, let's see where life wants to take me. Mm. Oh, so many good nuggets here. First of all, this idea of the spontaneity, part of it brings in the checking in with what we innately desire, which we don't do very often because we are scheduled out and booked out. And there was a guest on the podcast uh, a few months ago, Renee Trudeau, 
I love her. She's a retreat leader. She has participants at her retreats put their hand on their hearts and ask themselves probably 20 times a day, how do I feel? What do I need? What do I want? And just reactivating that part of yourself that tunes in again and again and again, there's always an answer when you do that. It's like, oh, I really need warmth right now. I really need a breath of fresh air outside right now. I really, your heart has an answer. It just needs the space to be checked in with, which I think is incredible. Yes. Deep listening. Deep listening. Deep, like every, yeah, like every meditation teacher, every mindfulness teacher, the only thing they're really doing is to teach you to deeply listen to yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, like if, if there's ever a teacher that's saying, listen to me, run, run the far. other way, like run far, run. <laughs> run far, you know, but, and I guess people will use different terminology and I'm very open. So I'm not like stuck on any particular vocabulary, but if you don't listen, how do you hear, how do you sense and how do you know that you are indeed a divine being with the life force flowing through you without your effort every day, every moment. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the yoga and the meditation and all of these life experiences have always taught me every step of the way to come closer to in alignment to that flow inside. And, and then I can be with it and I can use it for service, which is exactly the thing that brings me most joy is what serves everyone the best, right? Yes, yes, yes. I really like to think about, you know, so many people say like, follow your heart, follow your heart. But what I always say is, but in order to follow its directions, you need to first listen (laughs) to those directions. So we're often missing a vital step with the kind of like, follow your heart approach, which is first you have to listen to your heart. Where does it actually want to go? And something else, two other things that you said really had me thinking. One is about just the turning off the phone for a day or for a weekend. So our son has, he's 10 years old and he has kind of instilled this tradition in our home that Saturdays are sacred and we, we can't go anywhere. So if we say to him, we have to go to the store on a Saturday, it's like, "Mm -mm, no, we are not leaving this house or, oh, there's a a gathering here or we have to run an errand there. It's like, no, it doesn't happen on Saturdays because it's the one day of the week where it's like not thinking about school. Even on Sundays, he's like kind of anticipating what Monday will bring. So it's like Saturdays are sacred in our house and we might go outside and around our neighborhood. Um, but we're not getting in a car to go anywhere. And we're just kind Mm. of hanging out. There are no plans. And for part of me, I get a little restless because I like a plan. But then the other part of me, when it can finally relax past that, it's like, oh, well, we could do anything. We always end up playing games. We always end up dancing to music. We always end up doing just something spontaneous that you wouldn't normally think of. And so I love this idea of the spontaneity and this remembrance you said of the life force 
flowing through you, which I think a lot of times for me and many people, nature is that good reminder. Like you said, going to a forest for me, it's going to the water. What are the things that help remind you of that like life force moving through you? Well, like you said, you know, going out to nature, I think is the most powerful because it's almost like a forced reset. You know, if you're actually in deep nature where you don't have any reception or you're not with a friend, you're not chatting away, then it's the rustling of the leaves or the way the wind feels on your skin that invites you to pay more attention to what's going on on the inside, which is a lot of mental chatter, right? Even when you're alone, you've got a lot of thoughts. And so sometimes it takes hours of that, but if you stick with it, then it kind of washes away the layers and layers and layers until it begins to slow down the chatter. And then uh, I kind of want to touch upon this point you're mentioning about your Saturdays is that listening in to your true heart can be a multi-layered process. Mm. So my students and the community here in Japan, when I teach meditation and mindfulness, they ask me sometimes, well, how do you know if it is your true heart or if it is your true heart's desire? Because say your son says, oh, let's stay inside on Saturday. And your first reaction is, oh, but I want to plan. You know, is that my true heart? Mm-hmm. But then you let that settle and that passes. And then you're like, well, I, I guess I could flow with the spontaneity or, you know, like what is your true heart? Yeah. And I think that's such a beautiful question because that's your life. That's the process of your life. And that's self-discovery that you get to discover for yourself what's most true for you versus what's transient. Mm -hmm. What really pulls at your heart in a way that you can't not follow it. Mm. So how do you get clear on that about what most pulls what's most true and what's not transient does transient feel a certain way how do you clarify um i think i think it's mostly experience you try you know sometimes you have a dream that knocks on the door of your heart but you're like oh that's too risky oh that's too scary and you swipe left you swipe left you try to forget about it and then you go to your day job you know you go to take care of your family whatever Two years later, it comes back, that same idea, you know? So sometimes when something is meant to be or when you need to be the channel for that message or whatever, I find that it works in a timeless way. It doesn't work on a timeline, like a schedule, like we were talking about earlier, like in India, right? It comes when it comes and it's not in a hurry. Yeah but it can be relentless as shit. (laughs) Like it can just keep coming back at you until you hear, until you have the ears to listen. So that's one way. I think it's a process. For me, the word that comes to mind is resonance. Mm -hmm. So when I'm meditating or, or even when I'm speaking with someone and you touch upon truth, Truth has a resonance. Yeah. When you know that person is speaking from their deepest truth versus something maybe more, not a lie, but maybe it's a little bit more like casual or superficial. Yeah. When someone says, hey, thanks, you know, and it's pretty light versus like, oh my God, thank you. This really was important to me. Like it's just a deeper kind of resonance. Yeah. 
And although I don't play the violin, I would imagine like if you had an instrument in your hand and your ears and your fingers were trained to tune into that note, you're going to feel it. You're going to know it when it's slightly off. Yeah. When it's slightly mm -hmm. off. So in my way, and I know that people have different ways for this, but the yoga and the meditation helps to clear the gunk out of my system so that I can listen for that note, that tone of truth mm. that rings with my heart. And when I'm living with my attention on that, I'm equally as attentive to the other people around me too, right? When they're living in their truth or when they're like kind of just dodging things or, yeah, you know, so it's been a discovery for me that I think that's really the way I want to live my life. I want to live my life in that resonance. And I trust it now in a way that I, more than I ever have in my life, you know? Mm. I feel like you've made a case for why people can <laughs> meditate or should meditate in journal. Not that I would ever say should, but why we do, why people find it really, really beneficial. And so I want to get to a couple of things. One, I know that I can't skip past this without asking because people would be like, how does one become the face of Adidas yoga? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I should mention. So when I started yoga in 2001, and I started, you know, studying with my Indian teacher in 2003, started going to India in 2004, Japan's first yoga magazine, Yogini, premiered, well, its previous issue, it had a different title, but it premiered in 2003. And it was supposed to be just a single issue. Mm. And they just needed a girl who can model in it, who was fit enough to be able to take these postures. And because like I said, yoga was not a popular thing and it's actually different, you know, it's different from ballet, it's different from gymnastics. Stuff. So I, I don't think I had much competition to be honest. And so I was called into some auditions and I landed this cover of a yoga magazine, which happened to sell really, really well. So they were like, oh, let's make a second issue. So they got me on the cover of that and that sold well. So then they said, well, let's start a quarterly magazine was how they started Yogini magazine in 2004, I think was the first issue. And yeah, they just kept me on the cover for the following 10 years <laughs> plus special issues. But that's also because the team, the editor-in-chief and the team of Yogini Magazine had a mission because they were also very aware that yoga had suffered terrible reputational damage. So when they set out with the new magazine, they set out to repaint the image of yoga in Japanese culture. They wanted to make sure that it was the image of health and wellness, holistic wellness, and also that it would be fashionable and stylish mm -hmm. and cool. Mm -hmm. So I kind of became like the face of that. And then by 2005, 2006, this yoga boom had reached Japan. So then it was like suddenly super popularized. But yeah, I think it was just the fact that I was the face of this magazine for 10 years. But I also want to mention, because you are you and I'm me, that I think it was only the second issue 
of the magazine by 2004, I had the audacity to walk up to the editor in chief and I said, I know I'm like the cover girl and, you know, I'm thankful for all of these beautiful pictures and fashion and everything. But the thing is, yoga is so much more than its physical expression. And I want to tell you about what's changing inside of me. I want to write. Mm-hmm. So I went up to him and said that I want to write for the magazine. And he just kind of went, huh. And he didn't take me seriously. But I went back to him. I went back to him and I said, no, I really want to write. And he's like, have you ever written anything before? I'm like, er, I don't know, school essays, <laughs> you know? But I just kept asking him until finally he said, you know what? There's enough of a fan base now that the readers would want to know how yoga, how you started yoga and how yoga has changed you. So if you're going to write about that, you can write. So I wrote my first column. My sister is a journalist. So I had my sister proof my first draft. She read the entire essay. She took the final two lines. She said, cut the whole thing and start here. So total rewrite, (laughs) total rewrite. Okay. And then I rewrote the thing though, and they put it in the magazine and it did really well. So it became a quarterly column. So I wrote for the magazine for 10 years as well as being their cover model. And that was my intention. And that was really important to me that I would be a part of my little part of kind of spearheading the culture around yoga in Japan so that it wouldn't just be like this physical stretching method. I, I, I knew that it had changed my life from the inside because it changed my mind. Yeah. I needed to represent it in its wholeness. Yeah. And then after I completed those 10 years with the magazine, which also featured my pregnancy too, I had like a pregnancy issue, you know, with a huge belly on the cover. And then I had like postpartum issue. And then, yeah, after that, I started working with Adidas in 2015. But even then, Adidas obviously is a huge global sports company, but they didn't have a specific yoga line in Japan until 2015. Can you believe it? No, that's insane. So when they first started the yoga line was when they called me up and it was, uh, they had, yeah, it was this really beautiful moment. What I love is your tenacity, your ability to cultivate your courage and to ask for what you wanted and then follow up and persevere because so many of the women writers that I work with who have a story idea or a book idea the only thing that's kind of holding them back is trying to get past that. Oh, I don't want to ask. And I don't, you know, that's the thing. They have the talent, they have the writing skills, but many women have a hard time having that brave moment or that tenacious moment, that audacious moment. And so sometimes as a group, we practice brave days where I just ask everyone to come on Zoom. And on that day, you have to submit to the place you want to submit. You pitch the person you've been wanting to pitch. You know, you do the thing, the courageous thing. And that's not enough, though. Sometimes you need to follow up. I say that the follow up is a huge part of it because many of the milestones that have happened in our lives professionally or in writing have happened as a result of going, no, I'm really serious about that or following up on that email, following up on the pitch. And so I'm so glad that you did. (laughs) 
Yeah. And, and I also want to share with your audience that like in between my brave moments, I'm like, you know, weeping. And oh, yeah. oh, like, yeah. you know, I have dark, you know what I mean? Like I have these like dark low days too, where I just go within and I'm like, nobody talked to me. I'm, you know, I suck and whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but that's the beautiful thing I think about getting older and gaining experience and stuff too, because now I'm learning and you can only learn this through life experience. You cannot learn this through textbooks. You cannot learn this, not even through word of mouth, you know, try as we might with our children, right? You got to learn through your own life experience that some things take a few tries or more (laughs) and that some things are worth it. Mm -hmm. And how do you show yourself that what you truly believe in is really worth it? Like what better way than to have to keep going back at it year after year, month after month, try after try. And how many times is enough? Mm -hmm. And for me, that question does not come up with a numerical answer. Uh. I just go, I don't know, but I still believe in this. I still think I can do this and I'm just going to go for it. That's as simple as it is. <laughs> oh, I love that spinning of this it's kind of spinning the approach to it of like, how do you prove to yourself how much you want that thing or how important it is to you? And also this recognition and this admittance that it doesn't mean you're brave every moment of the day or don't have self-doubt. When I go to send a pitch to someone that I deeply admire and I get a little nervous, like, who am I to pitch this person? I reread that three-sentence pitch email for probably two hours. (laughs) I I hear you. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. My goodness. I I read it out loud to myself. And then I gave it a couple of minutes and uh-huh. then I come back and I read uh-huh. it again. Yeah. And, and yeah. so then I have a mantra, yeah. just press send, just press send, just press send. So this leads me to kind of my last big question, though. I want to talk to you for several hours. Take us kind of catch us up to speed in the last few years about your writing journey and and your life. Right. So. I guess in my late 20s, around age 30, I was divorced from my first husband. And then, which was really, really difficult for me. But in my mid 30s, I met a wonderful man and I remarried. And uh, we started this beautiful family together and had our second son. And, um, you know, we had just moved into this beautiful apartment together. He bought us a new car, a washing machine, a coffee machine, and a big king-size bed. And we were just, you know, building family. But a few short months after that, um, my husband, he was killed in a sudden traffic accident, which, as you can imagine, was just um, incredibly shocking. And it turned our lives upside down. And... um, I needed to disengage, Mm. not just from my work and my friends and society, but I just fell off the face of the earth. The only task, if you could call it that, that I gave myself 
during that time was may just breathe in, breathe out, just stay alive, you know? Cause I do, did have two kids. I do still have two kids, but somewhere in this first year of grief, and I, I had also told myself that I would give myself a year. So I detached from my work and my career entirely during this time. And I just allowed myself that room. I didn't know how else to do it. But I conceived this idea of writing a book. And I was hardly talking to my friends. I wasn't answering any emails. I just was not in any contact with any of society. But I was talking to my friend who's also a therapist in California. Mm -hmm. And he was always very, very present with me and very generous with his time. And on one grief stricken, weepy call, I shared with him my idea of this book. And it's because my grief was so harrowing and so deep and so hard and it just, ruined me and at the same time i had this incredible gratitude like i would call it extreme gratitude Mm. because i had two and a half years with my husband that we really shared our lives and our family like came together two and a half years is not a long time but in the loss of him in the sudden loss of him while I was totally wiped out and grieving, at the same time, I was like, if this was going to be the last two and a half years of this hands down, steaming hot, wonderful, awesome, perfect man, <laughs> I was the last person he wanted to spend his life with. I was the last person he wanted in his bed. I was the person that he wanted to have children with. I was the one whose food he wanted to eat, whose hand he wanted to hold. I was the one. I was the one. I was the one. And so I just had this extreme gratitude in the face of loss. And I can't explain it in any logical way, but I was like, I think I need to write about this. So I took 10 months and I started to write this book. Um, It's called Kizuki, Life's Tidal Waves Plus Epiphanies Equals Love Beyond Time and Death. And it touches upon all of these things that we've already been talking about. It touches upon the life experiences that are the tsunamis, the wipeouts that occur to rearrange our lives. And then the kizukis, the realizations, the epiphanies that follow the wipeouts. And the third is cocoon. Cocoon is our time to just delve deep within to our sacred space. It needs to be untouched. It's our sacred space. It's, it's our space of recreation. You know, it's like an energetic boundary. And then the final word is a Hebrew word, selah, which there's not an exact dictionary definition, but it's often referred to as a moment of pure silence that follows a resonance of truth. It's the ineffable fullness of life that follows without effort on our part. And so my book follows this arc of um, these four concepts, which I feel are essential to all of our lives because throughout each of our life experiences, 
we, it's like we're the same person with the same name, but our identities, who we are on the inside keeps getting like, it's a metamorphosis of identity, you know, because you're not the same person before your IVF experience and before having, you know, your beautiful son. And I'm not the same person from before my mother's disease or the loss of my husband or the birthing of my boys, you know? So it's a grief memoir, but not really in the sense that it just touches upon so much more. Yeah. Okay. Well, what the listeners <laughs> don't know is that I've been weeping for the last several minutes um, because I just think you're amazing. I think that you are such a gift to be able to, to pull that gratitude out during such a hard time. And the way that you were phrasing those two and a half years, um, I wish, I wish for everyone to be able to, uh, to see and find gratitude when they are in deep pain, the way that you just described it. Um, because I think that's really hard to do for a lot of people. Um, and it just felt so incredible to listen to you describe how even in the midst of deep pain, you were able to see this deep gratitude and feel this deep gratitude. And then eventually realize these these kind of four pillars and these different ways that we move through life and even in the midst of grief find these takeaways that of human experience that you can share with other people because everyone has had some deep tragedy and or multiple throughout their life and i'm sure everyone has felt in that just deep crevice and cave of pain. And it's like, how do I heal? How do I heal? How do I, it, it will never go away or my loved one who passed will never be forgotten, but, but how do I heal and, and expand? Um, so, Oh, I'm rambling because I'm so full of emotion, but <laughs> I'm so amazed and happy that you put pen to page to capture these universal experiences and these ways of looking at things that I think will really truly touch and heal people who are in their tsunami periods and they're like, okay, how do I move beyond this? Oh, yeah. Well, gosh, thank you for the beauty of your heart. And I just want to take it and cradle it and hold it with mine because I feel you. And, you know, I had the privilege of reading some of your articles and your experience and your vulnerability and courage and sharing your story. I know that that's your life work and passion that you would pull it out of us to tell our own story, you know. I can't say that my interpretation and my passage through this experience would have been the same had it not been for my lifelong practice of yoga and meditation and journaling. Yeah. You know, these were pre-existing things for me so that when something as deep and devastating as that happened, it was kind of like my safety net in my case, 
I didn't run to alcohol or I didn't run to substance abuse or I didn't, you know, I didn't go to these other things. I sat in the chair and meditated and did my yoga and started writing my thoughts out. And, but also like love, you know, like love. We're all born and raised in love to, from somewhere to some degree, not necessarily like from your mom and dad or your community even, but there's always some form of love that's providing this juice for you to remain and evolve as the human being that you are. And it's so easy in those dark periods of our lives to go into that victimhood and I'm not loved or, I mean, I've had like huge distrust issues with life. And I love how you said, well, how do you get through that period? Because that's exactly the question. Like, well, I like to ask myself, how do I allow the grief to change me? Mm. How do I allow this experience to change me? Because initially you're, you have tremendous resistance because you didn't want that thing to happen. You know, it wasn't supposed to be this way. That's the mental narrative, right? It wasn't supposed to be this way. And you do it in your own time, in your own way. Nobody can tell you to hurry. Nobody can tell you anything. But when it's time for you, you just soften up a little bit on that it wasn't supposed to be this way narrative. Because if it happened, it was supposed to be that way. Mm. And that's a hard truth to swallow. But with something as huge as my husband's passing, or with any of our life experiences, I had to. Because to not accept what's already happened in my life, I would just suffer more. I would be in resistance for the rest of my life and I would just be like this mean, old, stubborn crow, <laughs> right? I mean, so however long it takes and whatever winding path you need to take, but we all come to acceptance. And once you accept what's happened in your life and once you accept your limits, you go beyond them. And that's actually a quote from Albert Einstein that was a favorite of my husband's, but... Um, and gosh, obviously, it's so much easier said than done. But for whoever is going through it right now, and with you, and we're with you, and in your own way, you'll do it in your own way. You got this. Mm. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to close this out. <laughs> Um, I think the reassurance uh, that we will find our own way to allow the grief to change us and to move towards acceptance as opposed to resistance, I think that's some of our life's work is to do that. And I think that this conversation will certainly make people feel inspired and encouraged and seen and heard and held in that journey. So thank you. Thank you. This is more than I could have ever expected from, from a conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful for your heart and your beautiful presence. <laughs> 
I can't wait to meet you in person. I know we need to. Oh my gosh. Um, Oh, so tell people, I'm sure they're going to be interested. Where can they find you? Where can they spend time with you? Follow your work? Where do they go? So please visit my website. It's M-A-E-Y dot L-I-V-E. And my Instagram handle is May Yoshikawa, M-A-E-Y-O-S-H-I-K-A-W-A, where I try to be mindful about posting bilingually on a regular basis. So it's like a mixture of English and Japanese. Um, unfortunately, at the moment, almost all of my classes are offered in Japanese with regard to the meditation and mindfulness and the journaling classes, which we didn't even get to touch upon oh, gosh, today. Yeah. But, um, gosh, right. But I do have a small group mentorship program that's called Meguri, where I work with just five people at a time. So if you're interested in that ever, just drop a DM or email us via the website and we'll be in touch. Yeah. What do you do in those small groups? So it's really kind of a synchronous gathering and it's really based on what the students want to work on. I mean, I, one of my fortes, I think, is to really bring these spiritual truths into, down into a very practical day-to-day, like, how do I show up and go to work? How do I raise my children? You know, what about my teenage son? Like, these kind okay. of, like, nitty-gritty um, real-life issues. So I kind of just stand by and hold space for people to work through whatever is, like, oppressing theme at the moment. So past students have worked on starting a business or building a community. One girl started a podcast. So there's been like some creatives, like some artists and creatives. And there's also, you know, women who are carrying mm, issues like with their with their mom and issues from childhood that they just needed to heal and rebalance from. So I just try to be their person to hold their hand through that passage of darkness. So I'm like your hand holder until they can really begin to find that footing for a new self. Mm. You know, because sometimes that's all you need is a little hand holding to know that you're not alone in this new place that you're going to. Mm-mm-mm. Yes, you, you've referred to the safety net of yoga, journaling, meditation, and then also I find that, that humans act as that safety net too, or yes. the, the handholds. Yes. And yeah. your, your book, when it is out in the world, will you please let us know so we can get our hands Absolutely. on it? Absolutely. Oh. oh, I can't wait. Well, thank you. Thank you again. We have to keep in touch. I, I want you back on. This was a delightful conversation. Thank you so much, Nadine. The honor is all mine. Oh, what a powerful conversation. My heart is so full. So I want to hear what takeaways and tools were most impactful for you from this conversation. So please, when you post about it, tag us. We are both on Instagram under our names. So May is May Yoshikawa. I am at Nadine Kenny Johnstone. Let us know what was important for you. And more importantly, share it with a friend who is in the midst of a life tsunami. They need these words more than anyone. And then go and follow all things May and check her out because she is just a goddess. (laughs) And also, thank you, Michelle Rado, 
my producer, another goddess who makes this podcast incredible. And to you, all the goddesses out there, remember, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week.